Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Don't interrupt me, por favor. Ha vuelto el podcast bilingüe en inglés y en español. Hello, Nick Leiber. Hello, Guillermo Fesser. ¿Cómo estamos, Lisa Button? Hi, doing great. We're here in our Tucson studio. Bueno, tenemos un invitado hoy que se mueve en ese mundo que nos fascina a nosotros de las dos culturas, de los dos idiomas, del ser dos cosas y ninguna al mismo tiempo y nos encantaría que nos lo presentaras. Tengo el gran placer hoy de presentar Luis Alberto Urrea, un autor conocido por sus libros y cuentos sobre la zona fronteriza entre México y los Estados Unidos. In 2003, his book, The Devil's Highway, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and last year became a Guggenheim Fellow in Fiction. Yeah. He's also a member of the Latino Literature Hall of Fame. Um, and you are a Spanish, you're a, a creative writing professor in Illinois, right? Yes. Okay. Luis, you were born in Tijuana. Claro. And in your book, By the Lake of Sleeping Children, you write, My father raised me to be 100% Mexican, often refusing to speak English to me, tirelessly patrolling the borders of my language. Yeah. And my mother raised me to be 100% American. She never spoke Spanish, and she never pronounced my name correctly once in my entire life. Right. To her, I was Lewis. Yes. Can you tell us what that's like? Uh, I was either Louis or Dear Boy. And to my father, I was Luis or Cabron. <laughs> that told my whole life. Uh, it was very strange, but because you don't have anything to compare it to, I just thought it was everyone's upbringing. I often say on the road, I think everyone has a Mexican grandmother. And I'm always shocked. You don't? <laughs> um, so I, I have often said that, that the, the kitchen of our apartment was the United States. The living room was Mexico. And because my parents were at constant war, they weren't happy with each other. Uh, there was a border between the two of them culturally. Uh, and and it felt to me as though the border the border fence was between the kitchen and the living room. And uh, I remember when I went to uh, Mexico City for the first time in the 90s, uh, and I had published a couple of books, and I got interviewed by La Jornada. Mm -hmm. So I thought, wow, this is the best, you know, La Jornada. Yeah, yeah, llegué. Mm -hmm. You know, and Blanche Petrich, the journalist, interviewed me, and um, she was friends with Subcomandante Marcos. So I was like, yeah, mm -hmm. I'm in with all the zapatistas in it. Anyway, she said, pues, platícame de, de tu experiencia de fronterizo. And I said, Blanche. I was thinking I was very Carlos Fuentes right now. And I said, <laughs> Blanche, running down the center of me through my heart is a border fence. She was like, ay, qué bueno. She, you know, wrote it down and on. So when the newspaper came out the next day, it said, if you were to open Luis Urrea with a knife, you would find a border patrol truck in his heart. And I thought, pues no entiende nada. Maybe they didn't get it. <laughs> you know, I thought, oh, okay, el DF or CDMX. They didn't get it. Just like los gringos don't get it. That's super interesting. So then I, I realized that my job was different, that I thought I, I was trying to represent us as Mexicanos to the North American audience, but I realized that I had to represent fronterizos to the the rest of the of the readers and listeners. That was a, a, a lesson for me. But that that culture war in my house that I hate it turned out to be the best thing for me that I didn't know. 
Es muy interesante, es muy interesante que, perdona, que has embrace la, la frontera como identidad, ¿no? Porque cuando estabas hablando, yo me estaba acordando, mis hijos son como tú, su madre es de Estados Unidos, su padre es de España. Ah. Eh, yo tengo hijos extranjeros, yo nunca pensé que iba a tener hijos extranjeros. Eh, y, y recuerdo una frase de, de mi hija cuando era muy pequeñita, que me miraba y me decía... ¿Por qué no puedo tener padres normales? No. ¿Te ha pasado alguna vez que decías, ¿por qué no puedo tener yo padres normales? Yo quiero ser mexicano o yo quiero ser estadounidense, pero yo no quiero este lío aquí. Sí, pues así era, fíjate. Y, y, y mi papá eh, era eh, tuvo una experiencia muy mexicana, en que o de, de cierto nivel mexicano, porque empezó en una vida muy humilde, era minero de plata, right? He worked in the in the silver mines in Sinaloa, um, but he came from a town called Rosario, Sinaloa, mm -hmm. y el Rosario was was recognizable to me immediately when I read A Hundred Years of Solitude because it was Macondo, but a Mexican Macondo, mm -hmm. full of all the magia and all those tropes you you read about. Um, but then he went to the military. He became assistant to the president. He lived in the presidential palace in Mexico. So he got to to a nivel that was very elevated. And at a certain point in his career, he was given orders to do something he could not do. Y nunca me dijo que. But they, they gave him money, a check that he never cashed. I still have the check. And uh, he had to flee Mexico City. And he came to Tijuana because we had relatives in Tijuana. And he met my mother somehow, se casaron. And then he stepped out across to live in the United States. He had a green card. But he went from Don Alberto to Al, mm. si me entiendes. Sure. Que era, era beaner, greaser, como decían en San Diego, taco bender. Cayó hasta el fondo. Y limpiaba baños en boliches, mi papá. So I, I, and my mother, on the other hand, was in her country. She had been in Tijuana and did not like it. And she assumed all of Mexico was Tijuana. And my poor dad, I think, thought all of the poor part of San Diego was all the United States. ¿Me entiendes? So mm -hmm. I, I had this, this drive to try to tell people that we aren't what you think we are, either side of the borderline. You know, hay más ahí, hay una historia completa. There's this, there's this full soul, full history, full story, full value. Um, and I ended up being the first one in my family to go to college, thanks to the pressure from my mother and father, who had split up by the time I went to college. But that's where I really felt reintegrated that there's an intellectual, literary, musical, all this stuff that I did not know about in Southern California. There were no Spanish-speaking authors I had ever heard of all through junior high and high school except for Cervantes. And in Cervantes, <laughs> you know, they would talk about Don Quixote to us, but they couldn't say it, so they would say Don Quixote, the famous book Don Quixote. And... <laughs> We thought it was un burro llamado Hody. <laughs> donkey Hody. Oh, that's funny. There was a donkey. I could never find the book. And we thought, I'm not going to read a kid's book. Are you crazy? The donkey named Hody. <laughs> you know, I have a theory about Don Quixote. Y creo que eh, nos han obligado a leer Don Quixote solo viendo a Don Quixote y se han olvidado de Sancho Panza, que es, que es el personaje sin el cual Don Quijote ni iría a caballo, ni merendaría claro. a la hora de la tarde, ni se metería en la cama, ni le plancharían los pantalones. Y el, que es el que mueve el mundo. Pero bueno, eso es para sí. otra historia. Aquí está Nick Liver levantando el dedo que tiene una pregunta. Atención, Nick Liver pregunta desde so, los estudios centrales de ACAST. Luis, Luis Alberto Urrea, ¿cuándo uh, decidiste que empezar a escribir esto? Que serías la persona que hablaría sobre estos these two different cultures that you would start to write. Well, I, I didn't intend to. I just wanted to write. I knew that I had that thing and I couldn't figure out what it was. And, you know, it was, it was, I was a blue collar kid, man. You know, it came out of listening to too much rock and roll. I, 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 I was, I was hypnotized by Leonard Cohen. 
and I knew that there was some mystery happening in those lyrics that were it was far beyond me, but I wanted to go there. And I was a reading fanatic. You know, we lived in a rough after Tijuana, we were in a barrio that was very tough, and it was a ethnic war between white, brown, and black. I was a little kid. I look Irish, blue-eyed, you know, all that stuff. But I had a strong Tijuana accent, man. I spoke Spanish first before I spoke English. And I spoke Spanglish también. So, you know, walking the quarter mile to my little Catholic school in the morning and back was a gauntlet <laughs> because every group that was at war thought, let's kick his ass. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> they found common ground on you. <laughs> See? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there I was, you know, in the apartment with Ray Bradbury. And then later. What? Reading. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Ray Bradbury. Yeah, my babysitter, Ray Bradbury. Because he was Tucson at one point. I yeah. Heard. So I was like, wait, what? Or as we knew him, Ramon. <laughs> Ramon Bunbury. <laughs> Little Spaniard thing there. Uh, no, reading Ray Bradbury and, and science fiction stories. And later we moved to the suburbs. And that's when really music got to me. And uh, listening to, to Leonard Cohen, listening to Jim Morrison, all those guys, of course, Bob Dylan. So that combined with books just gave me this fever. I wanted to do that thing. And I did not think that somebody from Tijuana or Barrio Logan would be an author. To me, authors were these demigods, you know, titans. Um, but I, I couldn't stop myself. I didn't have any plan. I just wanted to tell stories. And then later when I discovered romance, I wanted to write poems, you know, um, that's all I had. I had no money. I had no good shoes. I couldn't dance. <laughs> I had no hope of getting a car ever in high school, but I had words and that just kept going. It never stopped. And, and even when, even when your, your first book wasn't published at first, the first yeah. year, the second year, or the third year, or the fourth year, or the fifth year, or the sixth yeah. year, or the seventh year, or the eighth year, or the ninth year, or the tenth yeah. year. You said, I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep doing this. There's stories here that aren't being told that I'm going to tell. Well, yeah, I'll tell you what happened was um, I was, you know, like I said, I was the first one in college. And my, my father in my senior year died in the hands of Mexican police in a very tough way uh, in uh, the state of Sonora. And um, it threw me, it threw me hard. I, I had no, I didn't know how to process something like this. And I wrote about it. And um, Ursula K. Le Guin, the great author, came to my college as a visiting workshop leader. And she read the story and she took it for an anthology and began my publishing life. Um, but when I graduated, I didn't know what, had meaning at that point it, the the details of my dad's death were awful and you know it threw my mother and me into utter chaos and hopeless poverty again and um i decided i don't know why but i decided to go back to tijuana and help the poor so that experience accidentally turned me from somebody who secretly wanted to be Robert Plant and Led Zeppelin or, you know, Stephen King. I thought I could get a private jet or something if I wrote poems. Not true. Um, into somebody who didn't know the the nomenclature for it, but became interested in a work of witness. Okay. So I I was a translator for many years. So my job was not just talking to people, but hearing their stories over and over. Um, and I was completely inundated in La Frontera, in all of its hidden ways, all the people no one saw or cared about. Y puedo preguntarte, and, puedo preguntarte cómo cambió tu vida sí. después de escuchar tantas historias, porque la mía eh, cambió. Eh, yo siempre tenía la pregunta, ¿cómo habla uno de los pobres con respeto? Es decir, cuando uno realmente no ha sido pobre, eh, ¿qué, ¿qué derecho sí. tiene a, a contar esa historia? Pero luego me, me pareció que la pobreza no se combatía con cosas, con riqueza, sino se combatía no. con acceso a cosas, con justicia. Y entonces dije, ¿puedo ayudar? a que esta gente reciba justicia. Y es mi manera... Ese fue mi cambio cuando yo escuché, cuando escuché historias. ¿Y cuál es, cuál es, 
¿cuál es tu cambio? Porque seguramente ha habido un cambio después de escuchar historias, ¿no? No, claro. Exactamente lo que dices. Eh, es que vivimos en la orilla de la pobreza, pero si llegas al basurero municipal de Tijuana y ves gente, muchos de ellos de la indígena, que viven ahí en cartones de papel, ¿no? En, en, en cajas uh, entre caballos y vacas muertas. Estaban quemando los caballos ahí cada jueves. Eh, torres de, de piel uh, encendida como algo de Goya, ¿no? Y esta gente sin nada, sin esperanza, sin, sin nada. ¿Y sabes lo que querían? Un abrazo, una plática, una taza de café, un poco de comida si quieres llevarles comida. Viva Eduardo un Galeano. Yeah, right. Viva Eduardo yeah. Galeano. Yeah, Galeano Jr. over here. Pero, pero es que, y, y todos ellos tenían una historia, right? They wanted someone to hear the story. And the moment happened, te puedo contar exactamente, fue un proceso. Por favor. Pero the, 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 the Satori moment, you know, the, the, the illumination moment, was in a, a place called Ladrillera, mm -hmm. and it was south of Tecate, where Tecate beer comes from. Y Ladrillera era un lugar de puro lodo, but it was, it was clay, And people got there, and they were they were squatting on the territory, and they were making bricks, and they they built their own kilns, and they had enough money to get diesel fuel to pump into the kilns and ignite the bricks to bake them, and then they would go sell the bricks in uh, Tecate, and we would drive all over Baja California in these in these vans and trucks with radios, and we got a radio call that there was a little girl burned. And there was nobody near there to, to help her. And we had to drive, I don't know, 80, 90 miles to get to her. But we went. And uh, she was in a little hut. And she was about 11. And she was completely burned. She had had a little bath, a nightgown. And the diesel got on it and caught her on fire. Okay. Y estaba parada en la oscuridad. Totalmente desnuda. Quemada and trembling she couldn't sit down she was just standing with her arms held out and nobody could help her she was shaking from the burns and uh we we helped her we got a a group there's a group of doctors in san diego that fly and they flew in and they took her in an airplane to a clinic far down in san quintin Uh, and they saved her life. So the people in the town loved this pastor I worked for, for saving the little girl. So we would visit them every week. And I was standing there writing in my notebook, leaning on one of the vehicles in Ladrillera, writing. And there was a man walking across the mud. He had a stick over his shoulder, completely black, completely covered in dirt and oil. And he came over and he said, oye, ¿qué estás haciendo? And I said, pues, aquí escribiendo mi libro. Ah, sí. ¿Y, y, 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 y qué tipo de libro? I said, you know, it's a, it's a journal. I said, oh, ajá. ¿Y qué es eso? <laughs> and I said, es un diario, más o menos. Ah, sí. <laughs> sí. ¿Y qué es eso? So I said, look, it's a blank book, see? There's nothing in it. And I'm writing down what happens during the day, so I'll have a record. And he said, wait, wait, I'll translate. But he said, you're, you're writing about this place? And I said, yeah. ¿Y esta gente? And I said, yes, I'm writing about that. He said, are you going to write about me? And I said something like, pues, creo que sí, man. <laughs> creo que sí. And he just stared at me for a minute. And I, I often tell this detail. You'll know what I'm talking about. You know, when you go out to a cantina or something and people drink and that one guy gets drunk and you don't know if he's going to hug you or hit you. Sure. you know, he smiles at you in a funny way and he leans back and you think <laughs> either this guy's my hermano for life <laughs> or he's going to punch me in the mouth. It was that moment. 
And then he said, ¿sabes qué? Qué bueno. Escríbelo. Escríbelo. He said, you write about me in your book. He said, because I was born, there's a little hill there with a garbage dump. I was born up there in the garbage dump. I've lived my life here in the mud. And when I die, they're going to stick me up there with the garbage. And he said, you tell them I was here. And he went back to work. And that just haunted me more and more and more. You tell them I was here. And I thought, why me? Yo no soy nada. No soy nadie. But then I thought, but I have words. He doesn't. ¿Me entiendes? Totalmente, totalmente. The... Tú eres el Internet de esa gente. Internet no es solamente que podemos exactly. acceder a Amazon. Es que los de Amazon pueden acceder a nosotros y enterarse de que existimos. Exactamente. Entonces, este, hubo un milagrito y conseguí trabajo en Harvard. Y en 1982 me fui por primera vez a Boston. I had never been anywhere, man. I had been to Sinaloa. You know, I'd been all yeah. over Mexico. Yeah. I'd been all the way to San Francisco. I did go to the Grand Canyon once. I'd never been anywhere. So there I was in Boston for the first time. Then at Cambridge, you know, living this whole new life. And that's when I realized I have to tell their story. It was haunting me. So I started writing that book. And it started being rejected in 1984. And it was rejected nonstop until 1993. Voy a dejar que te pregunte algo, Lisa, eh, pero quiero decir que seguramente en Boston, aparte de darte cuenta de esto, te darías cuenta que la cerveza mexicana es bastante superior a, a la que hay aquí en Estados Unidos. I don't know. I think they'd have something to say to you about the craft beers in Boston. I know. Which are pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, um, you know, You're, you're discussing like the borderlands are like a third place, really, between there's Mexico, yeah. there's the United States, yeah. but there's the borderlands. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like it's a its third own, it's its own nation. Almost, it really is. A hundred miles north and a hundred miles south of the line right. is a different nation. And I would say that people who live in this area as, as where we are, um, you know, we're We're all a little bit of something. And I guess uh, it's not just in the borderlands, but it feels magnified here. Yeah. It's almost like a kaleidoscope that mm. you turn it one little notch and you're going to have something different. Right. You know, you're going to have something different aquí adentro. You know, you've got somebody else. Um, lately, there's been a big, um, you know, storm about who people are, who has the right to write about this from a point of, you know, to tell these stories. And I think you know where I'm going with this. I do. I'm about to jump out of the studio and run away. <laughs> you don't have to talk about it, but I feel like I have to bring it up because it has been part of the national conversation. Well, for one thing, I think the, the, that, that explanation is, is not accurate. It's not about who can tell the story. That's a bunch uh -huh. of crap. Yeah. It, you know, it's been foisted upon people that this poor, delicate white writer is being assaulted by brown masses of angry people. It's not really that. It's about how you write about people. And, uh, you know, I, I hate to see that so many uh, Mexican or Latin X, as we call ourselves now, writers are having to give lists of, look, these white people wrote great books. It's not that. It's it's a kind of appropriation that has people angry, um, a, a misrepresentation. And one of my favorite writers about this, there are several writers who've done amazing work, uh, angry work about this and have shaken the industry. But um, there's a guy named David Schmidt who's uh, actually had been on the same relief crew I was on. Mm. So he knows this land really well. Yeah. But uh, he has been writing examples. Say that, you know, I, I say that you picked up a book written by somebody from Hong Kong who visited Disneyland once and is now an expert about the United States. And he just starts writing these absurd images about it. 
And if you see Mexican critics who found out about this book, they're losing their minds because it's 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 weird. Oh, yeah. But para mí, para mí, fíjate, incluso es más insultante. Bueno, voy a decir a la gente que escuchas el podcast don't fuera, fuera don't de Estados Unidos. Don't interrupt him, por favor. Es yeah, que yeah, estamos I, hablando I, de algo que la gente que está en Argentina <laughs> o en España <laughs> o en Costa Rica igual no saben. Hay un libro, se llama American Dirt, lo ha escrito una escritora oh. estadounidense y ha tenido críticas de la comunidad hispana diciendo que, bueno, pues que ha, ha perpetuado los estereotipos de los hispanos eh, en nombre de hacer la supernovela del siglo donde, donde cuenta la realidad, ¿no? Bás, básicamente, pero yo digo, para mí es todavía más hiriente de lo que tú cuentas, porque para mí es como si los nativos americanos, aquí vinimos los europeos hace 500 años, dijimos que los, los, los nativos americanos eran unos tíos primitivos, inútiles, eh, les cogimos el territorio, les mandamos a, a una esquina en campos de concentración que, que se llaman, eh, ¿cómo se llaman? ¿Dónde están los indios ahora? Que ya no me acuerdo. The reservations. Exacto, reservations. Y, y, yeah. y, y 500 años después se nos ha ocurrido ahora con el calentamiento global que lo bueno es reciclar, que lo bueno es a, a, a amar la naturaleza, que lo bueno es respetar. Y dices, joder, pues eso es todo lo que hacían los indios. Entonces, si yo soy indio, digo, mire, ustedes me han jodido durante 500 años, pero por lo menos de copyright me lo da, ¿no? O sea, que esto era, esto era mío. Encima, encima no venga usted que de hombre blanco encima se le ha ocurrido ahora. <risa> pues, ¿qué decía, ¿qué decía Manu Chao? Que es indio de Barcelona. Y medio francés, sí, de, de madre francesa. Sí, de medio francés. Es que eso sucedió. Y pues para mí yo no hablo de eso porque partes de mis libros aparentemente aparecen en este libro y, y no me siento uh, en una posición sin chillar como bebé que creo que, you know, they went shopping for some stuff out of some other people's books. No me gustó. And you know that they're here in town right now, right? No, I didn't. Oprah's doing her talk show today here? with her. Yeah, here in Tucson. So it's just a really strange moment. And, and um, you know, I think part of the issue that that has come up about this is that this is very much a response, not just, I think, to that book, but to Stephen Miller and The Wall and Donald Trump, and certainly ICE, and the cages with children. There's just this moment when I think people finally broke. It was just that, it's too much. Pent up. Pent up rage. And uh, I've talked to several, I would say, important media types. I don't want to go on their shows. I don't, you know, I, I went on Latino USA. I said, yeah. that's it. I'm not going to do more. Just, just Maria. And yeah. That's it. And I was going to mention that interview for if anybody really wants to explore and hear the author's point of view and all that. Yeah. I, it's, it's a very interesting conundrum and I don't wish her ill necessarily. Um, you know, it's tough being a writer. Mm -hmm. I don't have the fortitude to withstand the fire she's been in since this happened. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I wouldn't have done what was done. Mm -hmm. I hope. Yeah. I try hard not to. Y, en ese yeah. y en ese momento de, de tragedia, de dolor, de, 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 de tan difícil para la gente que habla español eh, eh, en Estados Unidos y obviamente tan dificilísimo para la gente que habla español al sur de Estados Unidos, que, porque es donde hemos claro. creado el problema y la gente tiene que salir huyendo. Claro, es como el holocausto. Es que, que yo le dije el otro día a un, a un Trump supporter, digo, si, 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 Trump, si Trump hubiera sido presidente después de la Segunda Guerra Mundial, no hubiera dejado que vinieran los del holocausto, porque es lo mismo. Esta gente viene porque los matan si no vienen aquí. ¿Qué me está usted contando? Pero, pero digo, en toda esta tragedia no podemos aprovechar te pregunto a ti, eh, como escritor mmm, de referencia en el mundo de Estados Unidos, en español, eh, no, no podéis aprovechar, yo no, no sé por qué me he incluido en esto, no, 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 no podéis aprovechar este momento mmm, para, para contar todo lo que hay detrás de esto, no de la tragedia, sino del mundo hispano, la cultura, la riqueza, la historia, la gastronomía, la manera de divertirse, el gustazo que da ir a un bar y poder llevar a un niño y que no se asuste porque su padre se toma una cerveza. No podemos ponerlo en valor todo eso. Pues claro, que he hecho mi vida entera y este hablando con sin decir nombres, alguien muy, uh, muy poderosa en el mundo de televisión que me preguntó, oye, ¿qué hago? Y le dije, pues para empezar, nosotros hemos estado escribiendo estos libros por todo el tiempo, desde los 
you know, los, los 50, los 60, los 70, los 80. Yo he estado contando la misma cosa desde 1977 y nadie me escucha. Pero no es verdad. Es que, you know, I feel sorry for myself. But, uh, you know, and I've, I've, been, I've been very lucky to have a, a, an audience. And it's not lost on me, by the way, that when this holocaust of, of criticism exploded, you know, I got 3,000 new Twitter followers overnight. I was like, wow, <laughs> I am a superstar. You are the and one. Then, <laughs> and then when it calms down and there's two followers every three days, then you, you know, feel like, oh, no, my career's over again. But you cannot think of it as, you know, numbers and as paychecks and things. It's what 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 matters to you what is your motivation in life and it's been it's been unwavering for me um i feel like i have to do this and every time i think i've gotten out of it something happens again so when i did the book the devil's highway you know that book it's been a bestseller since 2004 on and off and you know why because every time something terrible happens on the border it sells again so i feel very complicated feelings about that book yeah. there's a terrible tragedy but it just reminds me that the terrible tragedy does not go away i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, I'll tell you, that book, along with Across the Wire uh. and By the Lake of Sleeping Children, those books broke my heart. Uh -huh. But then your book... Hummingbird's Daughter <laughs> filled my heart. Good. And I love um, that, you know, your real life characters from your family remind me of some of my favorite characters from magical realism. <laughs> <laughs> That's, right. you know, right. I, I mean, they're just amazing people. Um, I, I, you know, I, I believe that almost everyone you meet is probably uh holding an amazing life-changing story experience you know uh set of circumstances i remember ernie pyle mm. a great i think american non-fictionist and just writer and journalist in general but you know for a while ernie pyle believed that he could go to any town in america and open a phone book and just randomly get a mind-boggling column And he did. He and his wife drove around. He couldn't drive, so she drove, and he sat in the back with a plank again across the armrest typing. And he, there's a book called Ernie Pyle's America, which, you know, if you want to feel like you love America deeply again, read that. Because he just goes to people and talks to them and gets their stories, and they're, they're, they're amazing. Um, you know, and Teresita from The Hummingbird's Daughters, the saint of Cabora, um, I, I heard about her in Tijuana. And anybody here probably on this panel knows knows this, that there are elders, something I think we don't honor anymore in the United States as much as we should. And those elders know stuff. And they're also liars. So I, I come from a family of unreliable narrators who <laughs> would, would spin whoppers all the time. And my tia flaca, would tell us these stories. And one of them was about your, your aunt. You know, you have a yucky aunt. ¿Qué te parece? Mm. Yucky? You know, really? Yeah. And she could heal the sick. ¿Qué te parece? Oh, pues que increíble, ¿no? She could touch a dead man and make him stand up. It's like, wow. And as I got older, the stories got more ridiculous. She could fly. Volaba como And so then I stopped believing. And, uh, My first teaching jobs were at a community college, a Chicano studies program, and I was a bilingual tutor and TA. And uh, 
the professor that I worked under was a brilliant Jesuit political Chicano, you know, from the 70s Chicano revolts and so forth. And he said, Urea, you're a son of the saint. And I said, what saint? And he said, the saint, la niña de Cabora. And I said, oh, you mean Teresita? And he said, yeah. And I said, nah, that's just a family legend. And he said, no, it's not. And he got North from Mexico by Carrie McWilliams. And there's a chapter about my aunt in the book. And it was the first time I'd seen anything written about her. And that was in 78, maybe. Um, and so I began researching her. And that took me 26 years. That's why I lived finally here in Tucson, because I have Yaki and Apache cousins here. And I couldn't believe it. I thought, what? I what? So magical realism, as soon as I stepped through that portal into her life, it started happening constantly. My life here was crazy. Um, but I think that all of us have this. We just lose it. And certainly in the tours for that and its sequel, people would always come to me and they'd say, gee, I wish I had an interesting history in my family like you. And I'd say, well, where are your people from? Ireland. I'd say, oh, really? You don't have an interesting, <laughs> mystical? <laughs> oh, no, we're just German. I said, German? You don't, you don't have this? You didn't have a, an aunt who could cure warts? Well, yes. Oh, this is, you know, they're the old ways that are. And uh, I mentioned to you that, that Le Guin found me. And Le Guin was my original mentor. And she used to say that writers are the raw nerve of the universe. We live in a world where people have forgotten what it feels like to be human. And we have to go out and feel it for them and bring it back to the fire, the morning fire of the village, which no longer exists. Bring back dreams, the feelings. And the book, the book is a song for the morning fire through which we can sort of parse out our histories. I've never forgotten that. I loved that. Yeah, how could you forget it? No, you can't, especially yeah. if Le Guin said it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and your most recent book, I'm going to ask you what you're working on ne next, but yeah. the, the House of Broken Angels, yeah. you bring in, like, it's really personal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was inspired by my brother's death, my brother Juan. Mm -hmm. You know, um, my dad was, uh, was a very classic Latin lover, <laughs> to tap into a cliche, but it was certainly true with my dad. And uh, he had a previous family, and he, I think, wanted his secrets kept, so he, he sort of made efforts to keep us apart. It was just me on this side, but then there were siblings that I wished I I was close to, but I wasn't really. But Juan was the eldest of, of the guys in that side, and he, too, was a reader, and he just refused to let go of my dad. So I would see Juan. And my father and Juan, a story that I love so much to this day, had taught each other English. I mean, they spoke English, but they made better English by memorizing the dictionary. And so Juan and my father would memorize five pages a week. Wow. And then they would test each other. And Juan loved science fiction. And that's where Ray Bradbury came from. He would send his old paperbacks with my dad back when, you know, uh, Ace and Fawcett paperbacks were 75 cents. Sure. Uh, and so I had all this stuff to read and it, it, it dovetailed with my fascination with things like Godzilla and UFOs and things as a kid. So I owe a lot of it to, to my brother Juan. And after my father died, Juan became the patriarch of the family. And, um, you know, he, he and I stayed close and it, it meant everything to him that I had become an author, um, and that I had books, you know, and when he got sick, um, it was a long process of his going down and, um, he was near the end and the family had decided his, his, uh, granddaughter, Crystal decided it'd be really cool to give him a farewell birthday party because everyone knew he wasn't going to last long after his birthday. Um, and that's where the book came from. And uh, 
as in the novel, the characters, they're, they're fictional. So there's a lot of stuff that never happened. Mm -hmm. We're not from La Paz, et cetera. But, um, one of the things that made or the thing that made the book happen was my brother would get weary and have to go to bed periodically during the day. And he called me in to the bedroom and we had never hugged. He was a very non, you know, abrazo, non, very serious, you know, man with a wild streak, if that makes any <laughs> sense. And he asked me to get in bed with him, which was incredibly uncomfortable. And we lay there and began talking. <laughs> we began talking. And we, we maybe figuratively and symbolically in one day made our way through our lives apart and together. It was amazing. And um, at the very end of the night when we were leaving, because I live basically on tour, you know, I live in hotels and on jets, basically. Thank God for your better half. Oh, Cindy and I are always <laughs> together. I would die if we weren't together. But, um, you know, in some ways, I guess my daydream of Robert Plant came true, right? I'm wandering around on planes all the time. But but uh, I had to go on tour. I had to leave there mm. and go to Flagstaff and then to Dallas. And um, the party was ending. And I went in his bedroom and he was lying in bed. I walked in his room and he said, don't say goodbye to me. And I said, okay, what do I say? And he said, say, I'll see you next time. I said, okay, I'll see you next time. And he reached out, took my hand. I thought he wanted to shake hands, but he pulled me close to the bed. And he said, later, when you see hummingbirds, that's me. He let me go. Mm. I went to Flagstaff. By the time I got to Dallas, he was dead. I had to come back. I had to turn around and come back so we could bury him. Um, and that stuff sticks with you, but I didn't know that it was going to be a book. Mm. Mm. And me wife out there, outside of the recording studio, you know, she kept telling me, this is a book. And I'd say, you're crazy. What's it about? And she said, don't you see? And this is when the Trump mania was really accelerating. And there are scenes in the book that really did happen. There were we were going to a funeral. There had been another death the week before, so we were all going to the funeral. And people were holding up signs. Go back where you came from. Build a wall. And for the birthday party, one of the Mexican tias had gone over to, you know, Kmart or someplace to get a birthday cake. And some happy American Trumpite lady got in her face and said, my president's going to make you get out of the country soon. And her take was, pero estoy comprando un pastel, que fregados quieres? <laughs> <laughs> and it just, it, it just all came to a head. Qué triste. Guillermo and I just came from spending a lot of time with Trump voters or people who are supporting Trump uh, in New Hampshire. And we were, we were talking with them. And one thing that they kept saying was, well, we, like, we welcome immigrants, but we'd like them to enter the U.S. legally. Oh yeah, and I, you know, what I, I, say? I used to get that a lot, and my 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 stump talk that I've given to bazillions of people, they would say that, yeah, yeah, my my ancestors came here, but they came legally, and I'd say, who stamped those papers? Was it Crazy Horse, Geronimo, <laughs> exactly. or exactly. exactly in the, the the Mayflower, they 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 they, they, yeah. they went through customs, <laughs> right? You just, yeah, I know. And I have, you know, I, 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 I pride myself in being able to talk to right and left. There's no problem. People are, I think people have a decency in them if you can reach it. If you get past rage and, and, and prejudice and weirdness and just talk. And I always tell audiences, you know, we need to talk to each other. We're, we're not communicating anymore. And that's very dangerous for us. So let's talk. To, let's laugh at each other. And they do. It's really cool. Plus, though, the Devil's Highway, they're always baffled. They think, wow, this guy got to be friends with the Border Patrol. So what's up with that? With, with, you know? Ken, with Kenny. Kenny. My boy Kenny retired to a horse ranch up in uh, New Mexico, having the living his best life. Wow. And so speaking of that, tonight you're going to be speaking at a fundraiser here yeah. for No Mas Muertes. Si. Can you tell us a little bit about 
that. Well, their work. You know, they're 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 heroes, man. They, you know, you know the Scott went through this federal trial. They tried to put him in prison for twenty years. They tried him twice for basically putting water out to save migrants. And, um, you know, these are people who are driven by a Christian impulse. Many of them is a spiritual impulse. It's not a political statement. They don't want people dying needlessly out there. Um, and, you know, tomorrow morning, my wife and I are going out the Devil's Highway with the, with the Humane Borders for some other stuff I can't talk about, but beautiful stuff. Um, you know, you... If if you're, my, my, I have a friend, a singer friend from Texas named Sean Phillips, and he used to have this, uh, this little catchphrase, which was, if you're gonna stand there and moo, you'd better give milk, and that's how I feel. If I if I'm <laughs> going to if I'm going to maintain this position, you know, of talking about these things, I, I'm not going to do it just because it's going to get me book sales or or fans. Yeah. Un selfie en la it's, frontera. <laughs> Yeah, right? With Cynthia in La Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we go down, my, Cindy and I go down to Celaya. There's a there's a place, you guys should do a show there, run by a guy named Pastor Ignacio called Abba House. And it's the only albergue in all of Mexico that deals with victims of La Bestia, people who have been dismembered by the train. Wow. And uh, then it became a, a way station for caravans. And he's a, he's a genius. So, you know, we, we help him too. We try to do fundraisers for him. And mm -hmm. I go there, I go to San Miguel because that's where there's literary stuff mm -hmm. as much as I can. So we can go down to Celaya and, oh, wow. and hang out with him. So you, you do travel a lot. Like you said, have you done any international traveling? Yeah. Yeah. So sure. what's, what's on your slate for 2020? Um, no touring internationally that I know of yet though. Um, Turkey keeps asking me to come and I I just uh, you know I have some issues with some of the things going on in Turkey but um I am going back to Europe in June I'm finishing researching this book uh -huh. I'm using my Can you say what Oh yeah no no on? problem yeah. yeah I'm I'm utilizing my Guggenheim money well uh -huh. um but yeah I I've I realized one day um that I had spent most of my life representing my dad's culture because it felt under fire. My dad, los mexicanos, mis, you know, mis primos, mis. And, uh, but my mother was a World War II hero. And she was in the Red Cross. And uh, she was in the Red Cross truck that contained the most forward American women in combat in World War II. And she, you know, she was, uh, she landed on Omaha Beach, they drove through Europe. They were in the Siege of Bastogne. They were trapped in the Battle of the Bulge. They went on to help liberate Buchenwald. And then she was almost killed after that, a horrible incident. And, uh, you know, and I've been sitting with her archives all my life and hearing her stories. My mother and my father both had PTSD. And one of the reasons, you know, back to the beginning of this chat that I was a Leonard Cohen fiend is that when they were still together in separate bedrooms, but in the same place, they both had nightmares all night. So I lived in a haunted house of shrieks and cries and teeth grinding and nightmares. And so I was an insomniac. I'd stay up late listening to Leonard Cohen, reading Richard Brodick and, and then writing in my notebooks. So... Um, I had all of her stuff, all of her stories, all of her memories, all of her photos, including of the piles of bodies, all this stuff. Wow. And uh, my mom died in 1990. And we had been talking, Cindy and I, you know, she's a reporter, formerly here, the Tucson citizen, but all over the country. Um, we'd been talking about this story and how to research it. And almost all of the women who had been in that group in, in World War II were dead. Um, and her best friend was a woman named Jill, and Jill was the truck driver, and uh, and we thought, well, it's too bad, but you know, let's see where she where she lived, and maybe we can find out something about her. And Cindy found a news interview with her called "Miss Jill Goes to War," and it was, you know, like from the year before, 
and she lived in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. She was 94. And she was amazing. She was the last one. And she's still the last one. She's 100, 101 now. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. And she kept even better organized stuff than my mother did. And uh, when we went to see her for the first time, it was in 1994, we walked into her apartment, and there's a huge picture of my mother on the wall. And you Which know, you were not expecting. You didn't. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, no. She didn't know my mom had had a child. She knew a different woman than I knew. That's often the case with our with our mothers and fathers. Oh right? yeah, yeah. My mother was uh, to them. She was Greer Garson. She was you know Scarlett O'Hara. This this exuberant, extravagant woman. And Jill said to us, "Your mother brought the joy to the war." Por eso a mí me gustan she... tanto los funerales en Estados Unidos, porque aprendes, ah. cosas, aprendes cosas de la gente que has conocido en un trocito de su vida que ni te imaginabas, Exacto. ¿no? De antes, de, durante, de después. Es como leer un libro, una novela rica, ¿no? I, 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 she, and she, you know, she, we, we, we recorded hours and hours just speaking with Miss Jill. And she liked whiskey, by the way. Le encantaba. Jameson. Uh, 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 she liked the Manhattan. Okay. She called okay. it joy juice. Joy juice. Y okay. whiskey, and she would be like 40 years old immediately. <laughs> it was great. But she had pictures of everything. And she she still has the map that she had stretched over the steering wheel of the big truck with all of her pencil marks everywhere she went. All this stuff. And uh, she had... Just show you what she's she's like. She has a she. I, I opened one of her albums, and there's a picture of my mother, on the beach with this handsome GI in in swimming trunks. And I said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! What's this?" And she leaned over and squinted at it, and she said, "Oh, that's Jake." And I said, "Jake, who's Jake?" And she said, "It was a war. We <laughs> all had men." <laughs> I thought, oh, mom, mom was a party girl. <laughs> We all had men. <laughs> so that's, you know, that that made me realize that this project I've been trying to write. I've written the book three times and thrown them out every time. But mucha, suerte, time mucha suerte con este proyecto, Luis Alberto Urrea. Ha sido, ha sido un placer tenerte en Don't Interrupt Me, por favor, y compartir con los hermanos que se mueven en el mundo bilingüe. Eh, tus inquietudes, tus sentimientos y tus deseos. Pues como dicen en mi barrio, órale loco. <risa> pues vámonos. <risa> Thank Hasta you. Adiós, adiós, adiós Lisa, adiós Lisa Patton. Adiós, Kim Professor. Adiós, Nick Liber. Nos vemos dentro de poco en otro show de Don't Interrupt Me. Por favor. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.